This is Radio Maria and today I personally and I hope you as well are absolutely delighted to welcome Malcolm Gite to speak with us. Malcolm Gite, the Reverend Dr. Malcolm Gite is a priest in the Anglican tradition and a poet. He says that these two aspects of his life go hand in hand with one another. He's a writer as well. He's a musician. He's a husband and a father and he's a lover of books and of pipes. And I know this because I've watched his YouTube channel, A Spell in the Library. Malcolm, welcome. It's really good to have you here. It's it's really nice to be here. I think this is my, my second time with um, with Radio Maria and you, you kindly asked if I'd, I'd come on and share some poems and I'm... Uh, I'm happy to do that. I think I'm going to be doing it again on on Monday. So I, I thought I'd just start with a short little poem um, called the, the Singing Bowl. Um, and uh, I don't even know about singing bowls, but they're these very beautiful sort of bronze bowls. They come from Tibet, which are so resonant that if you just, you don't even have to beat them. You just run your finger around the rim and they sort of tremble into sound. And I felt they might be a... Um, I mean, I, I lived in Los in Cambridge. There was also a, sh- a shop in uh, on King's Parade that used to have them in the windows, and I used to go and play with them and eventually bought one. But this is really a word from my muse, as it were, to me about how to write poetry. But by the time I'd finished writing it, I discovered it was also about prayer. And that was very helpful for bringing, if you like, the, the poet and the priest together. So here's a little poem. might be nice if any of your listeners are just wanting to be still for a moment and feel amidst the bustles they can get some centering so it goes like this singing bowl begin the song exactly where you are remain within the world of which you're made call nothing common in the earth or air accept it all and let it be for good start with the very breath you breathe in now this moment's pulse this rhythm in your blood and listen to it ringing soft and low stay with the music words will come in time slow down your breathing keep it deep and slow become an open singing bowl whose chime is richness rising out of emptiness and timelessness And I've just seen Malcolm. I don't know if you can hear me, but the internet connection has been lost. So what I'm going to do is to play a little piece of music. Um, Let's play Mary Theotokos by Steve Bell. And I'm going to hopefully get us back connected so we can continue with this beautiful poem. And wild waves taunt me now on this 
are listening to Radio Maria. I'm glad to say that we have uh, Reverend Malcolm Gait is back with us. Malcolm, can you hear me? I can, yes, Great. thank you. I'm sorry we lost connection there. We for did, a minute, but yeah, but, we, but you're back. Malcolm, I said uh, we missed you about halfway through your singing bowl. Would you mind beginning oh, that beautiful poem again. Um, I, I was resting with it and then and then uh, we, no, we lost I know how frustrating. Let me do it again. Thank so you. it goes like this, singing bowl. Begin the song exactly where you are. Remain within the world of which you're made. Call nothing common in the earth or air. Accept it all and let it be for good. Start with the very breath you breathe in now this moment's pulse, this rhythm in your blood, and listen to it ringing soft and low. Stay with the music. Words will come in time. Slow down your breathing. Keep it deep and slow. Become an open singing bowl whose chime is richness rising out of emptiness and timelessness resounding into time. And when the heart is full of quietness, Begin the song exactly where you are. So it's a little stillness and centering poem, but I think, as I said when I was reading it before, it started off, I thought, as a poem, as it were, from the muse to me about what I needed to do, in order, the state I needed to be in in order to write poetry. But by the time I'd finished it, um, I realized it was also about prayer and praying. So that helped, if you like, to bring the poet and the priest side of me together. Malcolm, um, just before you begin, you mentioned the muse speaking to you. What does that mean for us? That well, it's a way, of course, in a way, it's a manner of speaking. It's a very traditional way that the uh, poets speak about the muse. I think the first thing it means is that I, although I have a conscious part to play in what I write and I think about it and I craft it, I use meter and rhyme, I, I often write in sonnets and those don't happen, as it were, accidentally. 
I always feel by the time I've finished a poem that it's that it's taught me something, that I've discovered something, that it's come not just through my conscious mind, but in some way uh, from somewhere else. So, you know, I, I it's partly a feeling that the language itself is 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 a gift giver. You know that that all the words we use are older and wiser than we are. But as I suppose a way of summing up that something that something wise and beneficent um, that's there, if you like in the magic of poetry is helping. That's a very ancient idea. So a kind of convenient shorthand for it is the muse. It's not that I see, um, you know, as it were, a, a kind of presence uh, or, or anything like that. Although I wrote a poem called, called Muse. Maybe I'll read that to you actually as well, just quickly. This maybe says it better. This Thank is, um, it's just called Muse. It's a sonnet again. I stop and sense a subtle presence here an opalescent shimmer in the light, and catch, just at the corner of my eye, a shifting shape that no one else can see, just on the edge, the very edge of sight, just where the air is brightening, and where the sky is coloured underneath the cloud. And so, she comes to keep her tryst with me. She comes with music, music faintly heard, a trace, a grace note floating in clear air, as over hidden springs, the hazel stirs, time quivers, and then she is at my side, a quickened breath, a feather touch on skin, a sudden swift connection deep within. So let's try to use some outer images to talk about this moment of connection or inspiration, where you feel you're being given something, you're receiving something as well as working at something. An alchemy of sorts, isn't it? The um... it is, yeah, it is. And I think, um, I mean, I bring all these things, you know, to Christ, and I feel that, particularly for a Christian writer. I mean, obviously, the muse was originally a pre-Christian classical pagan idea, but when a Christian writes, obviously, they're thinking about the gentle influence of the Holy Spirit. But most of all, I think any Christian writer is thinking about that extraordinary opening to John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and and all things were made through him, that our God is creative, and that the analogy we can best use from Scripture with his creativity is the uttering of words. You know, he says, let there be light, and there is light. And then, of course, you know, then the word is, is made flesh. So I think, you know, a Christian writer can be conscious of that and hope that their own little act of making and, uh, if you like, incarnating for a moment a bit of meaning into a pattern of words is is itself a kind of um it takes place within and gestures towards that the great making the great speaking of the world into being which which god does all the time in in this and we of course are made in god's image so there's a little thing that we do it's um it's different altogether in degree and kind but yet it has a relation to the creativity of our God. I think that's one of the reasons why, in a sense, another aspect of Muse for me, the one who hears, the one supremely who hears God's word and allows it to become completely fruitful in her and for the world is Mary. I mean, in a sense, she's the archetype of every kind of listening Christian. I think you played a piece by my, um, by my friend Steve Bell, in which he sang a poem I wrote about Mary, and uh, the sense in which she speaks for all of us and receives the word, and every poet in their own small ways trying to receive the word. So this is my little poem, Mary. 
You bore for me the one who came to bless and bear for all, to make the broken whole. You heard his call, and in your open yes, you spoke aloud for every living soul. O oh, gracious lady, child of your own child, whose mother love still calls the child in me, call me again, for I am lost and wild waves surround me now. On this dark sea, shine as a star and call me to the shore. Open a door that all my sins would close and hold me in your garden. Let me share the prayer that folds the petals of the rose. Enfold me too in love's last mystery and bring me to the one you bore for me. So, you know, that's a poem that begins ad addressing Mary, but ends gesturing towards Christ, you know, as she is the one who brings, brings um, Christ to us and, and we come to Christ, you know, bring me to the one you bore for me. Um, so we've, we've, <laughs> we've strayed into, into poetry of faith. I mean, I write, I write poems, um, and I think you know, on Monday I'll be reading you some that, that, as it were, work with the Christian years and the great feasts, and they're intended to be helpful to my fellow Christians in liturgy. But I also write um, write poems about all kinds of other things. Uh, any you know anything and everything is the subject. I write I write love poetry. I write nature poetry, um, and uh, sometimes I write poems about. Uh, about language itself, about about words, about the magic of words. I think if you're a poet, you find language astonishing. Just as painters love the, the actual medium they work with, they love, love the paint and the canvas, and, uh, you know, sculptors love the clay. So, um, in a way, po po poets love the very medium that they work with. And um, I always think it's really interesting that the same word that we have for making letters by putting the right, for making words by putting the letters in the right order, that is to say, spelling or to learn to spell, is also the word for to cast a spell. And um, just like um, enchanting is, it's got the word chant in it. And I think poetry was, of course, originally almost chanted rather than before it was written down. Um, sometimes, you know, when you're sort of trying to write and you oh my goodness, what do I do next? You, you have to say to yourself, well, I've got the same 26 letters of the alphabet to recombine into words. I've got the same set that Shakespeare had, you know, I'm bound to strike it lucky sometime where we're working with the same toolkit. But it, of course, it's much more than a toolkit. The words do something magical. They summon something. So here's a little poem simply called Spell, uh, which is about both of those senses. Spell. Summon the summoners, the 26 enchanters, spelling silence into sound. They bind and loose, they find and are not found. Recall the river tongues from Alf to Styx. Summon the summoners, the shaping shapes, the grounds of sound, the generative grammar, signs of the mystery, inscribed arcana, runes from the root tree written in the deeps, leaves from the tail tree lifted swift and free, shining, recombining in their dance the genesis of every utterance, pattering the patterns of the tree. Summon the summoners and let them be, let them sing, 
The summon, summoners will summon everything. So um, I don't know how we're doing per time here between your music, um, whether we've got time for another quick one. We do indeed. It's actually, okay. we're at so I, I used to live in Cambridge, but now I live in Norfolk and I, I love the county of Norfolk. I'm learning to, to know more about my adopted county and go into the city of Norwich. But long before I um, I moved to Norfolk or visited, well, visited Norwich, Norwich had a special meaning for me because of Lady Julian of Norwich uh, and her revelations of divine love. That it was a very important text to me. When I was a student at Cambridge of literature, I was reading it for literary reasons, but actually I found it so moving that it was part of my journey back to Christ. So I wrote a sonnet on Julian of Norwich and um, I, I had an extraordinary, when lockdown first happened, I, I got a thing on Facebook from this was before, actually before lockdown, it was in January, and we were just hearing about it all in China. And I amazedly had an email, a message on Facebook from somebody in Wuhan in China where the, where the lockdown was really locked in, and she was locked into her apartment and also the whole city shut down and had the symptoms and was in you know, some distress. And she was a Canadian woman, a, a Christian teaching at an international school. But she said, Malcolm Guy's poetry is helping me. And I was so astonished. I thought, what possibly, you know, what, 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 how did that happen? So I, I, I contacted her and said, I'm glad to know my poetry's helped. I'm glad you have access to it. What poems in particular were helping? And she said, your sonnet on Julian of Norwich. And I said, I thought, of course, because she was an anchoress. You know, she's almost the patron saint of lockdown. Anyway, here's the poem, Julian of Norwich. Show me, O anchoress. Your anchor hold deep in the love of God and hold me fast. Show me again in whose hands we are held. Speak to me from your window in the past. Tell me again the tale of love's compassion for all of us who fall into the mire. How he is wounded with us. How his passion quickens the love that haunted our desire. Show me again the wonder of at one of Christ in us, distinct and yet the same, who makes and loves and keeps us in each moment and looks on us with pity, not with blame. Keep telling me, for all my faith may waver. Love is his meaning, only love forever. So uh, a lot of the phrases in that poem are... Um, are references to things that Julian has said in her writings. I, until I went to university, I didn't even know that there was a Christian mystical tradition and even a distinctly English Christian mystical tradition. I just thought Christianity was about sort of, you know, church jumble sales and moralizing sermons. I had no idea of the spiritual depth and breadth and beauty of the whole thing. And it took me a while to learn that. I felt that was almost kept from us at school. So, um, you know, she is, um, I think, one of the great mystics, one of the great Christian mystics. I think, I, I don't know what, what point we have the music, but I know I suggested we might play Van Morrison's song, Into the Mystic, which um, I don't think it's a specifically Christian song, although Van Morrison did later on to write very specifically Christian songs. But it's a song of the sort of journey. It's almost like on a boat into a mystery, and I find that a particularly moving piece of music.
You are listening to Radio Maria and this is our Just Life programme this this morning with the Reverend Dr. Malcolm Geit. And we are learning about poetry. We've been listening to Malcolm's beautiful poetry. And I have on air Helena. Welcome, Helena. Malcolm can hear you, I hope. Hello, hello. Thank you for sharing the poetry this morning. It's a pleasure, Elena. Nice to hear from you. I've got a question. I have uh, in in my parish, uh, well, back in America, my parish priest used to start a lot of his homilies with a joke. It's kind of like a pull-in. Do you often share your poetry during uh, your homilies, during your talks at church? Yes, I do. In fact, um, some of that poetry was written... I've got a little book called Sounding the Seasons, which is 70 sonnets for the Christian year. And those arose from a parish I was serving in in Cambridge, where, of course, we had the Bible readings in each service and we, the preacher always preached, you know, from the gospel. But we used to have what we called a secular reading, which was kind of in conversation, something more contemporary that people and the sermon could be in conversation with. So we're making making the gospel, you know, connect with everyday life. And I used to choose those readings. And then one day I thought, well, why don't I try writing some of them? And I began to write these poems that were sort of meditations on the gospel. And often they sum up. What's in, in fact, so I not only would sometimes quote them in the sentence, but at the early service, at the eight o'clock service, you know, where it's supposed to be a very brief homily, but I would sometimes go on a bit. I, I decided I might just try reading the sonnet as the homily. And I remember one of the church wardens saying to me after I'd done that a couple of Sundays, he said, he said, wonderful, he said, Malcolm, why didn't you tell us you could do it in just 14 lines when you first came? You know? <laughs> they were quite grateful for the poems condensing what would otherwise be rambling. Oh, I love that. Thank you for sharing your poetry today. My pleasure. Thank you, Helena. And um, Malcolm, just before you start your next section, you were talking, I loved the idea that with the 26 letters of the alphabet, I can take those same letters and try to um, do something a little bit like Shakespeare, perhaps, in my dreams. And you also talked about the word, God, the word, and how the word spoken leads to, you know, created what we are. And I was, I've wondered about what that means because it's not just the words, there's yeah. something behind yeah. it. Yes, of course, the word in, in John's gospel, um, the, in the beginning was the word enarche, enologos. So the word logos in Greek means, it does translate as the word word, but it means much more. What it really means is the meaning and coherence, the consistency and truth behind words. So so the Greeks, you know, long before they, they were, came to hear or believe the gospel, which of course they, they do now, very many of them, but the Greeks looked at the beauty of the world, at the order of it, at the the way the stars and the moon and the sun came and rose and set and the beautiful patterns of them and the patterns in nature. And they realized they had in their own minds a small capacity to enjoy and make significant patterns. And perhaps the most significant patterns we ever make are the patterns of sound that we call words. So they used this word logos to describe what was really for them the mind behind all all things. Um, And um, it was very important that whereas, you know, Matthew writing for uh, a particularly Jewish 
Christian group which spends a lot of time on the genealogy and how how Jesus um, fulfills what was promised in Moses. But John is aware that there are Greek speaking, uh, philosophically grounded people who don't know the old Jewish stories, but they need to know who, who Jesus is as well. So he says, in the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word was made flesh. That what we meet in Jesus is the one in whom and through whom all things have come into being and found order. You know, in him all things were made, and without him was nothing made. And now he has become a person and we can meet him, which is a staggering and amazing thing to say. So it's not that uh, there isn't the word in the sense that God speaks a word in the same way that I speak a word. He's, if you like, the whole of the meaning of God, the love of God in God's mind. St. Augustine put it very well when he said, uh, when he was writing his commentary on, on uh, John 1, 14, the word was made flesh. He said, if I have a word like love in my mind, it's there eternally. I, I, if I love you, I, I love you. And that remains. But... It would be helpful if I communicated that. So I can take the eternal word that's in my mind and I can turn it into a physical thing made out of air movements and sound waves and movements in your area. And I can say the words, I love you. And that's making the embodying the words. It doesn't change or take away what's in my mind. In fact, it has to be in my mind as well and true for me in order for me to a true statement in the world. So he actually says, you know, God is love and loves us. And in Jesus, his love is embodied in the same way that it would be for us if we spoke something aloud. He speaks his eternal love into time, if you like, in the person and word and works and, and death and resurrection of Jesus. Um, so, yeah, it's a very richly fruitful. Um, but, but Logos, as, as, as it's used by, um, by John, relates to this, this Greek idea, this profound wisdom um, that, that's there. I wrote a little poem called O Sapientia, which maybe expresses a little bit of that, about how we are all, as it were, in the mind of the Logos, in the mind of God. Uh, it just goes like this. I cannot think unless I have been thought, nor can I speak unless I have been spoken. I cannot teach except as I am taught, or break the bread except as I am broken. O mind, behind the mind through which I seek, O light within the light by which I see, O word beneath the words with which I speak, O founding unfound wisdom finding me, O sounding song whose depth is sounding me, O memory of time reminding me, my ground of being always grounding me, my maker's bounding line defining me, come hidden wisdom, Come with all you bring. Come to me now, disguised as everything. So that's the first of my poems on the Advent Antiphons, and they're all calling for Christ to come, but giving him different titles. In this case, Sapientia, giving him the title of wisdom. The original Antiphon prayer, which goes back to the 6th century, uh, it goes something like, O oh, wisdom coming forth from the mouth of the Most High, um, running from one end of the cosmos to the other, rightly and sweetly ordering all things, come and teach us the way of prudence. It's one of the great ancient prayers of the church, um, O Sapientia. So that's a little bit of what, what one might mean by the word. I love that. And, you know, when you were saying about O Pat Sapienza, I think of us being called Homo Sapiens as well. 
Yes, that's absolutely right. That's our distinguishing thing, or should be. And that's why it's such a shame when we when we abuse or or degrade this capacity both for wisdom and for for being logoi from the logos for for using words i think christians should be especially alert to what they do with words in the world you can do so much good through language that's what you try to do as a poet but there's so much hurt and damage done by words i mean i'll give you an example well, lots of lots of I I um, remember a thing happening in the states some years ago. Now, and it's got worse now. Where you know they were having their debates about gun law, and um, the National Rifle Association decided that they wanted to, um, you know, have a go at and critique politicians who were proposing, um, you know, modifications of the gun law. But they decided to use the word target that they would target them, and they literally put out posters of these politicians with a, with a, a, a you know, a, a range finder, you know, a rifle range finder over, over their picture. And then, you know, somebody shot one of these senators. She was, she was quite about 11 years ago. She was injured, you know, she's in a wheelchair. And I just thought about all these, you know, the, 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 the now in political terms, you know, the, the really vile language that people use against each other and degrade each other. So I wrote a poem called What If? And I was thinking about those remarkable lines in Matthew 12 and 36, where Jesus says, but I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof on the day of judgment. For by thy words shalt thou be justified, and by thy words shalt thou be condemned. So I wrote this poem about that, and it's the nearest I get to rap. I always thought maybe someday I should do it with a rhythm. So it goes like this. What if every word we say never ends or fades away, gathers volume, gathers way, drums and dins us with dismay, surges on some dreadful day when we cannot get away, whelms us till we drown. What if not a word is lost? What if every word we cast, cruel, cunning, cold, accursed, every word we cut and paste echoes to us from the past, fares and finds us first and last, haunts and hunts us down? What if every murmuration, every otiosuration, every blogger's obfuscation, every tweeted titivation, every open imprecation, insidious insinuation, every verbal aberration, unexamined asservation, idiotic iteration, every facile explanation drags us to the ground? What if each polite evasion, every word of defamation, insults made by implication, querulous prevarication, compromising convocation, propaganda for the nation, false or flattering persuasion, blackmail and manipulation, simulated desperation, grows to such reverberation that it shakes our own foundation, shakes and brings us down. Better that some words be lost Better that they should not last, tongues of fire and violence. O word through whom the world is blessed, word in whom all words are graced, do not bring us to the test. Give our clamant voices rest, and the rest is silence. So it's a little bit of... Wow. Uh, <laughs> 
chant, but it finishes with a prayer to Christ. It doesn't finish, I hope, on a down note. It finishes that we just have to keep bringing ourselves and our language back to the source of things in Christ for him to both to judge and to, to purify. That makes me um, think, if you don't mind me interrupting for a moment, no, Malcolm, no, but it, it really made me think of... Um, my use of words as a Lenten practice, you know, um, I've mm. never thought about considering how I use my words and bringing that into Lent. And I think, oh, I think it would be a great that. idea. I think that's a, that's a very good idea. Of course, we're in Lent now. And, um, you know, uh, I think on Monday, I'm going to be reading you some poems that I wrote specifically looking forward to, to Holy Week and, and thinking about Lent. But yes, to have a Lenten practice where you said that even if you took the positive side, that you would speak a kind word into someone's life mm. every day. That itself would be good. Or that you would refrain, you know, just have 40 days of, you know, thinking of that saying of Jesus, do not judge and you will not be judged, you know. Yes. Just being less hasty to judge or dismiss people for, you know, because even the person who's annoying annoying us and, you know, perhaps in our view, and perhaps quite, our view might be right, that they're behaving very badly. God still loves that person. He still died for that person. And he may have a purpose for that person, you know, beyond what we know. I always think about all the things that quite understandably Christians must have said about Saul while he was persecuting the church. Then, mm -hmm. you know, God turns him around on the road to Damascus and then he becomes, you know, the great spreader of the gospel and, you know, the, the great teacher of the church and, and defender of Christianity and gives his life for that. And we just don't know whether when, you know, some soul that's crossed our path, that God isn't going to turn that person into Paul and bless us through them, you know. Wow. So I yeah. think that's best for people. Um, I'm just trying to think about, you know, giving you the range of things. One of the things that went on during, um, we all had different ways of dealing with lockdown. And I revived lots of poems. I read lots of poems. I reread a wonderful poem that you know, many of your listeners may know. It was, you know, it's a, actually a translation of a Persian poem. It's called the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. And it was um, made into a very beautiful English version in the 19th century by um, a chap called Fitzgerald. And um, uh, they, uh, it has a very famous verse about just, if you're in a garden with someone you love, that's enough, you know. This is very close to Valentine's. It says, the, in the original Rubaiyat, it says, here with a a glass of wine beneath the brow, bow, a book of verse, a loaf of bread, and thou beside me singing in the wilderness. And wilderness is paradise now. So I, I, during lockdown, I decided to write a kind of new Ruby act, you know, and using that same meter and just kind of almost do a bit of, bit of journaling. Um, uh, and I thought I could read you just a couple of short sections from that. Um, one of the things that came into our lives in lockdown was Zoom, you know, this extraordinary thing that we all met on these flat screens. And in a way, of course, for education and, you know, for me doing services for my, my students, it was a godsend. But in another way, it was very poignant because you could see on the flat screen people you really, really wanted to be with. And you, you couldn't be with them, you know, you couldn't reach out and touch the screen. So I wrote a little bit about that, which we might ring a few bells for, for people if they remember all of that. So it goes like this. Sundays I am diverted by a call, the soft computer chime that summons all to show a face to faces that we meet, mirages, empty mirrors on the wall, 
Alas, that all the friends we ever knew, whose lives were fragrant and whose touch was true, can only meet us on some little screen, then zoom away with scarcely an adieu. We share with them the little that we know, these galleries of ghosts set in a row. They flicker on the screen of life a while, but some have left the meeting long ago. We used to stroll together on the green, who now divide the squares upon the screen. The faces of our friends so far apart tease us with tenderness that might have been. Someday we'll break the bread, we'll pour the wine, and meet and kiss and feast beneath the vine. Till then, we'll sweeten solitude with verse and yearn through pain and watch each day decline. So that was just touching on, um, I guess, some of the poignancy of those those times. Um, I had, and it's interesting, you know, you write these poems in lockdown, and then you don't quite know what, quite what's going to become of them. Towards the end of that poem, I was really thinking about the numbers were rising of those, and I was thinking about the care workers, you know, the people who were looking you know, looking after people in the care homes and working in the NHS and taking amazing risks. You know, we were all cowering in our houses and they were out there on the front line and um, you know some of them were losing their lives as a result so when I uh, came to finish the poem and, and I, we published it as a little book with some very beautiful paintings by the English painter Roger Wagner we did it for the care workers at charity and we raised quite a lot of money for them and by the end of the poem and the last section which I could read you is a little last section um, it was very much an elegy for those people. But the amazing thing that happened was that I was then invited. I had a letter um, um, inviting me to, to speak at St. Paul's Cathedral at the memorial service for the care workers and for all who died in, the, in, in, in that particular, both the city centre trusts and Barts and so on, attended by, uh, you know, by many of those heroic nurses. And... Um, so they asked me if I would read this last bit of the poem and at uh, that service, which I did. So I, I wrote it in my little heart, never thinking it would be read at St. Paul's. But I think it says something that probably we were all thinking towards the end of that time. So I'll just read this. And it finishes with a thing which I know I share with you, with, you know, in the Roman Catholic Church, I'm an Anglican, but I share a very strong sense of what it means to pray for the departed and to think of the saints giving their blessings on us and to be, as it were, the veil between the worlds being a bit thinner when we pray. So um, here's, here's how it goes. At close of day, I hear the gentle rain whilst experts on the radio explain mind-numbing numbers rising by the day, ciphers of unimaginable pain. Each evening they announce the deadly toll, and patient voices calmly call the roll. I hear the numbers, cannot know the names, behind each number, mind and heart and soul. Behind each number, one beloved face, a light in life whom no one can replace, leaves on this world a signature, a trace, a gleaning, and a memory of grace. All loved and loving, carried to the grave, the ones whom every effort could not save. Amongst them, all those carers whose strong love bought life for others with the lives they gave. The sun sets and I find myself in prayer, lifting aloft the sorrow that we share. 
feeling for words of hope amidst despair. I voice my vespers through the quiet air. O Christ, who suffers with us, hold us close, deep in the secret garden of the rose. Raise over us the banner of your love and raise us up beyond our last repose. Thank you, Malcolm. That um, both of those poems have uh, brought us brought back to life mm. so strongly. Those times that we lived through, and indeed we all shared them to some degree yeah. or other. We we all shared them, didn't we, with different experiences? We did, yeah. Um, I have your music to play now. Um, whenever God shines His light, Malcolm, and I'm going to invite callers again. We have. Uh, just under 15 minutes left. Why have you chosen this song? Well, I, uh, it was originally, I heard it, I'm not sure the version here, but I heard it as an unexpected, in my mind, duet between Van Morrison and Cliff Richards. And I always thought there was a spiritual element to Van Morrison's music and singing, and I've always loved it. But here he was singing explicitly about, about Christ and about uh, the way he comes directly into our lives. And I thought it was a really beautiful song. In the darkest night Then I know everything Is gonna be alright In deep confusion In great despair When I reach out for him He is there When I am lonely As I can be Then I know that God This is Radio Maria and we have Dr. Reverend Malcolm Geitz with us this afternoon. And Malcolm, we have a caller. I don't know if you are, if you were listening into the radio before before you came on, but we have a bard, Sarah de Nordwall. Sarah de Nordwall, you're on air. Oh, hello, Malcolm. I, I hello, Sarah. Wanted, hello. I just wanted to thank you so much. It's been just so wonderful and inspiring to listen to you. And I've been emailing all my friends to tell them to listen and all the bards of the Bard School. We, um, we, we came, some of us, to hear you introduce your amazing book, Mariner. Oh, yes. And, and we, were, we were just so inspired. And I wanted to ask you, you know, why do you think, Malcolm, there are so few poetic voices like yourself and like myself and the Bards? We now have a Bardcast on Radio Maria that you, you might enjoy. We'd love to invite you to come to Walsingham and share with us. Yeah. Um, why do you think there are so few Christian voices that can really do this beautiful mingling of the contemporary and the Christian. I mean, did you've given us a bit of your history of like wanting to act more as a priest and a poet, but how, how can we inspire people to be more um, open to sharing faith in a way that's unusual? Because you just hit this wonderful yeah. point of not being, not being preachy, even though you're a preacher and sharing the heart that makes one go, Oh, I want to hear that again. You know, <laughs> Yeah, I, it's a really good question, Sarah. I think, I think one of the things that's a real challenge for for people like ourselves, and actually in the other arts too, you know, in pitch, if you are both a Christian and an artist, it's a you're in a difficult position for this reason. But in the, broadly speaking, the sort of arts community, for a series of different historical reasons, is quite suspicious of Christianity in the church. So you know. Uh, especially in visual arts, but in poetry as well, everything has to be kind of radical and avant-garde and, you know, uh, shock. So if you're a Christian, you're sort of put on the edge that way. But then if you're in church and you're an artist or a poet, 
there's an element of church that says, well, what do we do with that? That's a bit weird, you know. They just yeah, want exactly. So you end up on that edge as well. Now, anything I can say is that's actually the edge is a great, great place to be. All the great movements of the church and the Holy Spirit and this have come from margins to margins and then become central. You know, it was a small fringe of Jewish Jewish people who recognized Jesus as the Messiah, who were pushed onto the edge of Judaism for their loyalty. And then it was a small group of pagans who were really interested in in having one God in Judaism, who were called the God-fearers. Paul was the person who evangelized both of those. Those were the two fringes that met. And often the great revival Christianity come from people who've been pushed onto the margins. They come from the mission field, if you like, back to the center. So I think we should own the fact that we are on a margin and say, let's be communicators both ways. Let me, as far as I can, communicate the joy and truth of Christianity, not the crummy sort of straw man false images that most people in arty communities have. You know, they all think we're the evangelist idea. very, very encouraging. Because I love what you said about the jumble sale approach. Yeah, but then let's also... Yeah. So I think we, we're, we're meant, God put us on this margin between faith and the arts for a reason, so that we could bring faith to the arts and bring the arts to the faith. Amen. Oh, Amen. Oh, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, Thank you. That is just, uh, can I ask one more question? Is what book yeah. could we buy of your poetry to take us through Lent? Have you got a book that um, you'd recommend? Yeah, I've got a book. It's not, just my, it's not just my poetry. It's an anthology of others as well. <laughs> and it's called The Word in the Wilderness. And it's a poem the day in Lent and right through, you know, to, to, to Easter Sunday. And um, I also have on, I, I have a blog that I, I, I put out where it, each week in Lent, I post up recordings of me reading that week's poems. So you can actually have the book and look at the poems. And each, the book has the poems. It has a little essay, a little opening, teasing out the meaning. So it's called The Word in the Wilderness. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Marco. I'm definitely going to look that up. I think I heard your O Sapientia there, but I'm going to do that in Lent. Thank you so much. And uh, you'll be hearing from me with invitations to come to Walsingham. Uh, thank you so much, Radio Maria, for inviting you. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you so much for calling, Sarah. Malcolm, we have four minutes left and I know that there, there must be at least a poem for us to hear from you before oh, we finish. Yeah, yeah, yes. Um, well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll finish with one which in a way is quite lighthearted, but it's also, um, yeah, it says something I really want to say. So it's a true, it's a true story. It's a confession. It's good for me in Lent. So <laughs> this poem is, is snappily called On Being Told My Poetry Was Found in a Broken Photocopy. And it's really true. I was supposed to give some talk, a talk on poetry, illustrate my poems. I hadn't got the handouts done. And I went in and thought, oh, I've managed to get this in the copy. It'll be fine. Or there'll be somebody to help me. And it was, there was nobody there in the room. And there was a huge, complicated copy. And I put some poetry in. And it seemed to it. And then the whole thing ground to a halt, you know. <laughs> And I had to take, the bell was going for the lecture, so I had to take my, my squishy and inadequate handouts and just leave the rest of it sort of in the <laughs> which I wouldn't have done if I'd had time, you know, to say. Anyway, of course, when I finished the lecture, I was walking past the room, you know, where the photocopy was, and this woman strode out holding one of my crunched up poems in her hand. And she pointed her finger at me and she said, your poetry is jamming my machine. <laughs> and I thought, that's such a good line. You know, obviously I didn't. So I had 
we, we, she showed me what I should have done. But um, but when I was leaving, I looked back and I saw she was uncrumpling one of my poems and reading it. So I thought I should, I owed her a poem, really. So this is the poem I wrote for her. It's a villanelle, which is a, a form that uses repeated lines. So it sort of photocopies itself. Anyway, um, but I hope I say something more about what poetry is. But I wrote this poem as an apology to the lady who, who's photocopier I can. On being told my poetry is found in a broken photocopier. My poetry is jamming your machine. It broke the photocopier. I'm to blame with pictures copied from a world unseen. My poem is in the works. I'm on the scene. We free my verse and I confess my shame. My poetry is jamming your machine. Though you berate me with what might have been, you stop to read the poem just the same. And pictures copied from a world unseen subvert the icons on your mental screen and open windows with a whispered name. My poetry is jamming your machine for chosen words can change the things they mean and set the once familiar world aflame with pictures copied from a world unseen. The mental props give way on which you lean. The world you see will never be the same. My poetry is jamming your machine with pictures copied from a world unseen. <laughs> That's fabulous. The um, Malcolm, your poetry really strikes uh, me as always the supernatural and natural, just touching. Yeah, that's that's a very good way of putting it. I'm always that's what I'm interested. In. I'm interested in that moment in encounter when the supernatural or natural or when grace meets nature or when we see a landscape or so or a person we love and something more than them glimmers through them. You know, something of the light of heaven uh, or eternity glimmering in and through time and materiality. What a grace! When are you back with us, Malcolm, for our listeners so they know when to listen in next? I, I think this will be really I'm with you on. Monday um, at 10. And I'm going to do some stuff particularly about Lent and Holy Week then, I think. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time today. It has been wonderful. It's been a great pleasure to be on and uh, uh, nice to share the hour with you. God bless you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from Radio Maria. If you enjoy these programs, please consider becoming one of our monthly donors. All you need to do is visit www.radiomariaengland.uk and click on the Support Us tab for various options. We rely entirely on donations, so thank you to all our listeners for their generous support.